You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Believe it or not, it's episode number six with your host, Jack Beck. Hello, thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. Okay, well with you today we have Jeffrey Greer, the founder of Pasco Games and the creator of Sans Ali's. Jeff, welcome to Your Tables on Fire. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Now, before we get any further, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing that right. Is it Sans Ali's? Uh, yeah, actually, we've gone back and forth with that. To be perfectly <laughs> correct, or at least to be as close as I can get it with my terrible French pronunciation, it would be Sans Allier. That second word is about three syllables, but they're said in close succession together. Okay, I'm, I'm sure I'll slaughter that the rest of the show, but we'll do what we can. We all will mess it up over and over again, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's exotic and catchy. Yeah, I like it. Right. So, Jeff, take a minute and introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, I'm Jeff. I've been designing games in an amateur sense ever since I was a kid. I started to take it a little more seriously when I was in high school, when I became more of a gamer myself, whether that was role-play games or some of the more heavy-duty Warcraft games like Avalon Hill series. And I went through a couple of, well, I've gone through several different trials and errors. Our first project that actually launched on Kickstarter in 2014 was a family game that my wife and I designed together. That one was a great experience for us because it really taught me a lot of the ins and outs of how Kickstarter works. It really opened my eyes to how the gaming industry works, how the hobby industry communicates. And uh, the the whole thing has been a, a tremendous learning experience. Outside of gaming, uh, I'm a dad. Is there anything outside of gaming? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I got two young sons. They are starting to get interested in uh, the hobby as well. My wife likes to play, you know, different kinds of games. She's not into the war theme type stuff, but uh, she likes good Euros. She likes good economics types games. And, uh, you know, we pay the bills with me being a teacher, a high school teacher. I teach social studies. Let's talk about your game company name, Pasco Games. Yeah. I'm assuming that's a reference to Monopoly. Partly it is, yeah. I wanted something that was short and brief that would make a nice URL. I mean, I was conscious of that. I didn't want some like ridiculously long name, something that I thought would be kind of catchy. Monopoly is definitely, definitely in my roots, and I know it's sort of like universally loathed in the gaming community. <laughs> But I'm not going to deny it. We played lots of Monopoly when I was a kid, and we were pretty ruthless with each other around the table. My dad is the one who taught us how to be real sinister Monopoly players. And then later, I started to learn what the strategy actually looked like. If you could get past that first phase of the game where you sort of get eliminated or not based on the die rolls, and you get to the negotiation part, I started to see what what strategy looked like in that game. Anyway, not to go too much on Monopoly, but that's definitely an origin game for me. That's one of the games that got me into gaming in general. So I feel like the Pasco name sort of is a, is a tip of the hat to that. But at the same time, we've moved on. We're doing bigger things. We're doing more complex things. We're doing games that are more involved than Monopoly and your traditional family fodder. So it's almost as if we have passed that stage of our life, if you know what I mean. <laughs> You know, you reference Monopoly as kind of an origin game. How have your tastes in games evolved since then? I've gone back and forth. When I was in high school, I got introduced to your Hex Encounter, like really heavy-duty war games. And those were mind-blowing for me. I had never seen a game like that up until that point. 
So I chewed them up. I was buying all kinds of Avalon Hill games and convincing my friends to spend all weekend playing these things with me because they were just, you know, long and detailed and just real heavy duty stuff. And I played those for many years into my early mid 20s. Then as things started to settle down and you get married and you have people over and friends and whatnot, you find out that, uh, you know, not everybody's into that kind of experience. I started to feel like, oh, I need more gateway games. I need more family games. I need more party games. And nowadays, I'm, I'm open to whatever. I don't have a lot of time to be playing those huge, chunky block pusher, hex encounter type things because I've got kids, I've got family time, I've got work, etc. I don't have those long weekends we had when we were 16 years old where you could just throw the whole thing away on a D&D campaign. I like to mix it up. Depends on what I'm in the mood for. Depends on who I'm playing with. I just like there to be a pretty nice blend of random luck and decision making. You know, I don't want it to be too random, but if it's if there's not enough luck, then it just it's, I don't know. It's too it's too analysis, if you know what I mean. So when you pull a game off the shelf, what else are you looking for? If I'm at a local game store and I'm shopping around, I'm always looking at is the game going to hit the table? Who am I going to play it with? You know, where am I going to fit this into our usual repertoire? There's so many games out there that looks like they're just so much fun. They're so awesome. And I just feel so bad because I look at it and go, man, I could buy this and I would never play it. No one would play it with me or I wouldn't have the time <laughs> to play it. You know, <laughs> I would set it up and then put it away, you know, so uh, that, that's that's the curse, right? We need more time. Yeah, that's maybe the downside of the hobby is it? it's a time suck for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it gets worse every year. You know, more and more good stuff come out, and you just go, man, that's great too, but ah, when am I going to play it? So you mentioned that you've been designing games since you were a kid. Yeah. Tell me about one of the first games you designed. Well, it's funny because I just wrote a, a blog on this and, and really featured my entire history, but apparently the oldest game, uh, the oldest known game, is this little board game I made on poster board. I think I was in about third grade, and I guess I called it Building Business. It sort of had your typical Monopoly layout. There's spaces around the edge of a square board. The spaces are marked off with different symbols. I used some sort of stencil to draw these symbols. I drew uh, little charts in the center of board showing how much money you were going to win or lose. Looked like it was a pretty luck-based game as I uh, analyzed it the other day, actually. <laughs> I vaguely remember sitting on the floor of my bedroom drawing those spaces out. I really don't know what the rules are supposed to be. And in fact, I had totally forgotten that thing even existed until a couple of months ago. My mom was digging through her attic or her garage or something and found this old thing. And it, it was a surprise to me. You know, I know I was inspired by my dad because my dad had made a board game that we played a lot when we were younger. And it was called On the Air. It was based on his experiences in radio broadcasting. And we just loved playing that. It was all homemade parts, paper, hole punch stuff. He, the typesetting was made on a typewriter, but we loved it, you know. Wow. You ever talk to your dad about taking that game to the next level? We talked about it recently, actually, uh, especially with this campaign getting started. I was telling him, yeah, it's a good game and it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of potential. We were talking about what works about it and what doesn't work so much about it and how it would stand up against modern interests and what people are looking for in games these days. We didn't make any commitments, but we did kind of talk about it like, well, I wonder if and just kind of left it hanging. Hmm. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Right. <laughs> That's right. So now, like you mentioned in your intro, this is not your first game you have on Kickstarter. Even. Right. 
you have a game called Parenthood. Can you yep. tell us a little bit about that? That is a completely different target audience than Sans Allier. That is a total family game, social game. It's got a real lightweight take that mechanic. The general premise is the player has a household and you're playing kid cards onto your household. You're trying to draw graduation cards that move them up through these different age categories. And if you're a parent, then you know that the object of parenthood is to get your kids out of the house. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the game Millborn. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got that sort of similar mechanic where you're laying problems on the other player and then they can't proceed until they play the card to remove the problem. It's got that take that mechanic, like I said, where you're sticking it to the other guy. The game is really hilarious when you get the right crowd, and it plays real well with two different crowds we've found. You've got a totally clean family theme going on. There's nothing raunchy about the cards. They're all very G-rated cartoon artwork, things like that. So you can play with the kids. And when you're playing with the kids, you end up having these sort of accidental life lessons, you know, like, wow, <laughs> raising kids is hard, you know. <laughs> and it's a great sort of uh, family game for non-gamers because it inspires conversation around the table and it gets people talking about family stories of their own that they're reminded of. Then at the same time, we have found that it resonates real well in more of a party atmosphere where people are drinking or staying up late and not necessarily people who have kids, but the theme is universal and the jokes in the game are something that everybody can relate to because even if you don't have kids, you were a kid at some point. It really encourages storytelling around the table. People bring their sense of humor to the table and so... If people's sense of humor tends to be a little bit on the R-rated side, then that's what happens. And we've had some really hilarious games as a result. So obviously, Parenthood, like you said, is very different than Sans Allier. Yeah. What would you say then is your core design philosophy? My core design philosophy? I don't know if I've ever really thought about that. I guess theme is very important to me. I don't prefer it when a game has a really nice skin and really nice artwork, but it really doesn't have anything to do with your decision-making process, and those two things don't go hand in hand. I really like the game to have some sort of element of simulation where the decisions you're making are the kinds of decisions that you would be confronted with if you were in that sort of scenario. So I like for the theme to be really strong in whatever I'm designing. That goes a long way into why I settle on the decisions that I settle on for, for the player to make. Well, let's talk about Sans Allier. For those that aren't familiar with the game, can you give us the rundown? Sure. Sans Allier, this is a solitaire card game with a war theme. I hesitate to call it a war game because, you know, within the genre of war games, that sort of has a very specific definition and it involves a lot of detail and it involves a lot of time it involves more historical simulation type scenarios. This is not like that. This is a, a more streamlined war themed game. The theming is World War II-ish, but it's not specifically World War II and there's no actual real world nations mentioned. The way the cards are set up has a lot in common with the traditional solitaire game, Pyramid Solitaire, or sometimes as it's known, Ancient Egypt. The short version is the pyramid represents the enemy nation that you are trying to cut through, and your draw deck produces various military units, including personnel, vehicles, aircraft, and ships. And using the right combinations of these cards, in combination with a die roll, you engage in combat and you try to remove the cards from the pyramid, representing your progressive invasion of this enemy nation. 
You're trying to get to the card at the top, which represents the enemy capital, and that's a victory for you. Meanwhile, the enemy is working on uh, some sort of ultimate weapon, uh, a, a super weapon of sorts, and there's a timing track that runs turn after turn after turn that is putting the pressure on the player. You need to get to that capital before the enemy completes his progression on his research. If you look at Pyramid Solitaire, visually the two games look very similar, but Sans Allier is much more thematic. There's a lot more complex decision-making process. And the goal, and I feel like I've accomplished this so far, and I seem to be getting the right kind of feedback from people, the goal was to take something that's kind of big board, like your Axis and Allies type of area movement, area control type of game, and compress it into something small, something you could play at a card table, something you could play at your desk, and of course, something you could play solo. If you're short five or six players for a big war game, you've got this to... <laughs> sort of pull the fang on that. Well, how do you accomplish that? How do you sum down Axis and Allies into a simpler game? It's called Sans Allier. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so it's a single-player game. There's not a lot of single-player games out there. So how did you decide on that? You know, I decided on it at my desk at work one day. I was sitting there with some downtime I just got that urge, you know, I, like I was saying earlier, it kind of depends on the mood I'm in. I just got this feeling, man, I'd like to play something area control. I want to do a risk type of thing. I want to do a game where I'm moving through countryside and taking over territories and stuff. And I don't know, call it divine inspiration or call it the muse or call it sheer accident. I don't know how it happens, but I just thought, hey, what if you had a game like that that you could play at a desk with a deck of cards? What would that be like? So then you take a stack of index cards, you cut them up, and you start drawing on them with a pencil, and you see where it goes. How long ago was that? That inception moment was uh, May of last year, actually. Hmm. So nearly a year ago. Yeah, that that's actually, in my opinion, that's a pretty fast development curve for any game. But it has the advantage that it was solitaire. So it didn't, I, I could play test it dozens and dozens of times over the course of a week without having to schedule other players to get together with me. So I could get the game, and I did get the game to a really strong position all by myself in the wee hours of the morning and the in-between times. And uh, when I did start bringing on beta testers, then the game was already really solid. It was nice to be able to just give the playtesters something that was highly functioning so that the feedback they gave was just really on point, you know. So that's sort of the advantage of a solitaire game. It's the advantage of a, a sort of a small game is you can playtest it relatively quickly. Of course, the bigger and more complex you're getting with the game and the more players you're involving in it, the more possible scenarios you're going to run into. So the more playtesting, the longer playtesting it needs. So in that 10 months, how has the game evolved? Mainly it's gotten more and more complex. You know, I guess if I were to sum it up in sort of a soundbite like that, there are many more rules that made the decision-making process more interesting and made the game, well, more balanced. You know, like instead of just, I hope I roll well and I pray to God that I do, there's actually more decisions that the player makes that helps mitigate die rolls so that even when you do have a really sucky die roll and it screws you pretty bad on one turn, that's not the end of the game. There's decisions you can make to help compensate for things like that. 
But the nice thing is, as we've added rules and as we've added different dimensions to the game, they all function pretty modularly. So a lot of the rules can be added independently of the other rules. So the player has a lot of freedom to make the game as complex or as simple as they prefer. So does that mean you have different like modes in the game and that you can choose how complex you want it to be? Yeah, presently in the in the current version of the rules, we've got it split in two. We've got what's called limited war, which is just the basic rules, the bare minimum you need to play the game and get the basic idea. And then I've got a second half of that, which we're calling total war, that includes all the other different rules that get added into it. But even then, the various additional rules, they don't necessarily need to all be there. The player can decide, well, I like this rule. I'm going to play with that function active, so to speak, and the other one's not necessarily so. Can you give us an example of one of the rules that might be optional? Sure. One rule, for example, is we've got a card in there called commander cards. You've got your personnel cards, vehicles, ships, and aircraft, and those are four types of units. And then there's commander cards. If you're playing the limited war rules, you pull the commanders out of the deck and they're not in there at all. You don't have to worry about them. If you play with them in the deck, then they serve their own purpose. The commanders act as a wild card. They can go, uh, they can function as any of those four types of units. They can also serve what's called uh, espionage rule, which is one of the various ways that you can attempt to set back the enemy progress and buy yourself more time. So those are two things that uh, the commander cards do that don't necessarily have to be there. Another optional rule is the weather. We've got a chit in there. It's it's shaped like a rondelle right now. It's circular. And that represents the four seasons of the year. If you're playing basic rules, that's not in there at all. If you decide to go with that and add the element of the seasons, then it fluctuates the difficulty level. Uh, A summer month is an easier attack. A winter month is a more difficult attack. So those are a couple examples there of what, what may or may not be in the complexity considerations. Mm -hmm. Who would you say is your target audience for this game? Well, apparently there's a whole universe of solo game players who sort of specialize in solo gaming. So I definitely hope to attract some of those fellas and and ladies. I think this game appeals to people who like war-themed games. As I was saying before, it's not one of your hardcore war games, but I think there's definitely overlap there. And I think it appeals to people who like a little bit of a uh, chance, who enjoyed playing Risk when you were kids, who enjoyed promoting to Axis and Allies. Games that are war-ish games, but they don't have that sort of intense level of detail that really starts to turn it into a simulation. I think I remember on your Kickstarter page, you said the game takes between an hour, an hour and a half. Is that right? It takes about an hour, uh, pretty consistently. When I've had a really good game, gone about 45 minutes, or a really bad one, <laughs> but 45 to an hour seems to be the average. Because the game's based on attrition, you're generally going to play the game all the way out. When you lose, you lose at the end of the game because you are very close to your objective, but you just don't have the resources and the decisions have not been uh, favorable to you and so on. But you end up playing a full game nonetheless. I feel that this is appealing because there's a lot of solitaire games out there, whether you're talking about modern games or traditional games, where you deal the thing out and you lose immediately, like in the first couple of turns, then you got to reset the game. Granted, a lot of these games are pretty easy to reset, but I think it's sort of frustrating to play the game three turns and then it's already over for you. Right, right. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about playtesting. You mentioned the advantage of the solitaire game. You could playtest a lot yourself. When you introduced it to people who were not familiar with it, was there any surprise moments, any feedback that you weren't counting on? Yeah, I've gotten some good feedback. It's always good to get new sets of eyeballs in there. Different players are going to make decisions and have thought processes that, I, that wouldn't even occur to me. For example, one that we're working with right now is as you draw cards from your production deck, you get your assorted types of units, and then you have to assemble these units to make invasion attempts. As you succeed, even when you succeed and as you lose, you're going to whittle your forces down, and it'll limit the number of invasions you can make in a given turn. I must have play tested the thing 10,000 times, and I just thought, great, I, you know, I'm gaining and losing these units at the appropriate rate, a rate that is fair. And then we took it to some of the beta testers, and a couple of the guys looked at it and said, you know, hey, what's to stop me from just sitting around and stockpiling some massive army? turn after turn after turn, and then just making a bull run straight at the middle. Turns out they were right. You can do that. So <laughs> that's not something I would have thought of. And I'm so glad that they brought it up because now that's something we go, yeah, okay, we've got to figure out how to make sure to balance that out so that not just because it's a cheap way to play, but it makes sense. We, you want You want the theme to come through and you want the theme to make sense and if you have the ability to do something like that in the game, it just kind of breaks the theme. I've gotten some good feedback on the layout, like how, how the information is arranged, whether it's along the side of the pyramid or whether it's on a player reference card. And that's very helpful because as you're designing something, you have a tendency to design it for yourself in a way that makes sense to you, the designer. And it's good to get feedback from different players who have different you know, different learning modalities or different processing modalities. And they say, hey, you know, when this is over here, I just can't see it or it doesn't compute. You know, it would be better if this was shown down here on a different display card or something like that. And you get to, to see how different people are going to be able to process the information that they need to know. And that's important, too. Well, speaking of design, did you design the cards? You have a graphic designer you've been working with? I designed sort of like your basic I drew them in pencil. Here's what I had in mind. Uh, I think I'm going to put icons like this, that, and the other. I slapdashed a beta testing deck together by stealing a bunch of pictures off the internet. But I knew the whole time that none of this was going to stick, that this was all just to make it look nice while I was testing it and exhibiting it. For the final product, we do have a graphic designer. We hired a professional to do this. The stuff that you see on the Kickstarter page, he's putting together the graphics. They look fantastic. And that's been a great experience, too, because he, by trade, is not a gamer. He's a graphic designer. It's been a nice back and forth between him and me because he'll bring up points that I wouldn't consider. He's coming from the perspective of graphic designer and what looks good and what people, how people process information. And then I'm able to offset that with, yes, but as a gamer, this is what people really would like to see. And when you do this, it's annoying. And when this looks like this, people don't like that, you know? <laughs> so it's been a nice complimentary relationship. And I think it's resulting in some really high quality cards, cards that look good, but are also functional and, and make the game flow real well for the player. Well, you've been live on Kickstarter for, I think, a little over a week now. Yeah. How's that going? We crossed 4,000 today. We're trying to get to 9,700. So I don't know what percentage that is, but it's around 40% or something like that. 
I feel like it's going well. I'm optimistic. We put a lot of work into trying to do it right, to put out a good quality product, to make sure that the thing was tested, to give it a little bit of promotion before the campaign began. I got to tell you, and anybody who's run a Kickstarter probably already knows this, it's nerve-wracking. If you care about the product, every single day is, is sort of like obsessive. You're looking at the numbers, you're checking for messages, you're seeing what people are saying, you're back on BGG. Are there any comments today? You know, it's really bad for your soul to tell you the truth. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend doing one uh, any more frequently than one a year or one every two years, something like that. <laughs> it's a really obsessive process, but it, you know, it comes from the right place. It comes from you really caring and really wanting wanting it to succeed. That's where we are right now. I'm watching it and I'm, I'm trying to be real receptive to the backers when they bring something up or have a question or a suggestion. I want to deliver. I want to deliver what people are asking for. I think I've got a great game here. The people who've played it, they seem to agree. I want to respond to them. And one of the amazing things is I'm getting great feedback from the community. I've got somebody out there who decided he wanted to make a version on Tabletop Simulator, purely on his own, purely out of the goodness of his heart. Not only did he help the campaign because we got to use that software, but how awesome is that, that you made this thing and then people are in love with it so much that they want to do more with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've got a guy out there who decided he was going to put up a template on BGG so that you could make a box for the print and play version. I never even thought of that, you know? And then we got a guy who emailed me the other day, said he wanted to translate the rules into French for us. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's a great feeling because you put some heart and soul into this project that you think is going to be fun. And it's really rewarding to put it out there and see that people are really loving it. And they want to, they want to play, you know, not just play the game, but they want to play with it. They want to be creative with it. You start to lose control of that. You lose control of what's happening to it. You lose control of who's doing what with it. But that's that's awesome. It's liberating, and it makes you feel like you really made something meaningful to people. Yeah, that's really exciting. It is. So you mentioned that you had some promotion lined up even before the Kickstarter launched. Can you talk about your promotion strategies? Mostly, I really took it to heart that you need to build your community first. Not just have a product and then say, hey, look at this great thing I want to sell you. I put a lot of time into building up relationships with people on Twitter, building up our website and our blog. I made a commitment to myself that I was going to put this blog article out once a week and it was going to be free content and it was going to be fun and meaningful content for people. I took that message to heart that if you want people to back you, then you need to be there. You need to be in the community. You need to be talking. You need to be engaging. When you are one of us, quote unquote, <laughs> people want to support you. People want to support their friends. They don't want to support somebody who just showed up and said, hey, you know, I got a swamp to sell you. They want to support you if you're already in with them. I've been trying to really make that priority number one. Let's have a good relationship. Let's talk games. Let's be geeks. Let's talk comic books. Yes, by the way, I do design games like many of you guys out there do. That was probably paramount in my so-called promotion strategy. The other thing was taking my ego and getting it out of the way. <laughs> if I thought, oh, this is a great idea, and then I stopped there and didn't listen to suggestions that people had, I really was looking for feedback and I was looking for how to learn. You know, How do you make a print and play version? Someone tell me that. What is involved in this process? What software do I need? How does this work? Just asking more questions and really being open to people's answers so that you could say, all right, 
let's make this the best thing it can possibly be. That's really the strategy. (laughs) One thing I like about this community, the hobby gaming community, is it really resonates sincerity to me. I just feel like, in general, gamers have no time for salesmen and the pitch and all the sort of gimmicks you see uh, on television, the hard sell, all that kind of stuff. We want legitimately good product from legitimately cool people. It's very lateral. There isn't like this top-down relationship where there's producers and consumers. We're all consuming, and a lot of us like to produce as well, and there's a big overlap there, and that's awesome. After Sans Elier is out and about, what's next for you? I got a couple things in the pipeline. I don't know which ones will manifest. Some of them are sitting on a shelf waiting for me to get the next idea of what's going to happen with them. The two things that are most prominent in my mind right now, I've got a game that is shaping up to be a sort of tile placement railroad builder game, but I'm trying to look at what's already out there in the railroad industry and in pick up and deliver type games. I'm trying to look at what's already out there and make sure I'm not repeating too much of the same old sing song that's found in a lot of games. That one's kind of dynamic. Right now, I'm experimenting with some dice rolling, tile placement, and pick up and deliver all at the same time. It's, it's a hodgepodge, but it's still in the works. And another thing that just barely is getting underway in my mind, it's, it's very decent. I haven't even cut up an index card yet. I'm just reading books. But... I I love submarines, and I love submarine movies, I love submarine books, and I wanted to have a game that was submarine-based, solitaire again. But the ones I've found so far are about submarine fleets and submarine campaigns, you know, like the entire campaign in the Pacific. What I'm hungering for is just you, the lone wolf, the one submarine. You're the skipper, you've got your one submarine, you're on the hunt, and you're looking at things in your periscope, and it's shoot the torpedo, that kind of thing, you know, hunter-seeker type stuff. So I'm, I'm devouring submarine lore and trying to figure out how submarines work and why you do things. And like I said, there's not much of a game there yet. I'm just learning about submarines, but <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if it turns into something great. You know, that theme sounds really exciting. I mean, like you say, I can't think of another game that kind of scratches that itch. So. Yeah, and everybody wants to be a submarine skipper, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've all seen Red October. We know <laughs> yeah, what that's like. That's what you want. That's what you want right there. Give us some advice for up-and-coming game designers. What would you tell them? Learn. Learn, 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 learn. There's so much to learn. Figure out what you want to do. Figure out who's already doing that. Ask them how to do it. Probably more importantly than that, actually take the advice. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. There's already people out there who are doing this, and they're doing it successfully. They've got good advice. you got to listen to them. And it's not because they're trying to tell you I'm this, that, and the other. It's because they're trying to help you. Everybody in this community wants to help everybody else out, and we all want everybody to be producing and playing great games. You've got to listen. You've You've got to join in the conversation. I don't know. That's probably the biggest piece of advice that comes to mind right off the bat. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, Jeff, we have one last thing to do, and it's the real reason I've invited you onto Your Tables on Fire. I can't wait. And that's to play the game design challenge. (laughs) Okay. So here's how this works. I'm going to randomly select a game theme, give it to you, and then just off the top of your head, I want you to come up with a game and pitch it back to me. Oh, man. I'm going to make something awful for you. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) Okay. So let let me pick a theme here. And 
Your theme is going to be Monsters Under the Bed. Monsters Under the Bed. All right. Already I'm thinking intellectual property. You've got Monsters, Inc. You've got Pixar. It's right there. Okay. Okay. There's a couple of things. You know, side note, I've always thought at Disneyland or wherever, they should make a roller coaster with the Monsters, Inc. theme where the roller coaster is that scene at the end where they're going through the doors warehouse. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh Uh-huh. And the doors are like being moved, all these massive tracks into different stacks of doors, and the lights are coming on when the little girl's laughing and everything. And I mean, just watching that scene in the movie theater, I felt like I was on a roller coaster, and I thought, this needs to be their next ride at the park. But (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they haven't built it yet because, I don't know, they haven't called me to ask for my input on that. What are they waiting for? I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm on a podcast and everything, so what the heck? (laughs) Yeah, right? Okay, so Monsters Under the Bed. This sounds like a family theme, okay? You've got the kids. Maybe it's something that you can encourage kids to not be afraid of Monsters Under the Bed. Who we got? We've got the intellectual property. We've got Mike and Sully. These are your hero monsters. We've got that lizard salamander thing voiced by Steve Buscemi. (laughs) (laughs) I forget the character's name. What are we doing? We're doing a dungeon crawl through a house. Okay, so it's like a simplified dungeon crawl. Players are kids in bed or parents in the bedroom, something like that. You've got to go around the house, find various cartoonish type weapons that you can use to slay the monsters who are coming out under the bed. I like it. (laughs) We're on to something. I'm doing this this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And so what would be the move mechanic as you're getting around the house? The house is going to be gridded, okay? So it's going to be like a and d type of dungeon crawl, but uh, you want the rules to be streamlined. You don't want it to be too complex like these uh, really high-caliber role-play games where they've thought of every possible scenario that (laughs) players might come up with. Right, right. This has got to work for five-year-olds, so. Yeah, yeah. Roll and move is kind of boring, Maybe you've got a movement rate. You've got certain actions. You know what's a cool game is uh, Flashpoint, where the players are firefighters working on an inferno on a building. And that's got like action point allotment. Okay, so you can move or you can chop at the wall or you can discover a point of interest. And you've got four points. That works real well. I like it. And they've got this mechanic where you can save your action points. So if you don't use all four actions on one turn, you get these tokens to keep track of how many you've reserved. So on the next turn, you could possibly go above four. That works real well with my kids. That makes sense. And it's more decision-based instead of just, I chucked a die and I got a four and oh crud, I needed to move five, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Monsters, I don't know. It depends. If we're going to do cooperative, the monsters are going to have to be some sort of like bot-based system. You're thinking like a, like a real streamlined version of Zombie Side or something like that. Right. Or um, if you're going to do like a GM type of thing, then maybe the GM controls the monsters. Who knows? Kids like it when mom and dad are the bad guys in your various role play <laughs> scenarios. So, <laughs> so it could be kids versus parents in that game. Yeah, I like that. That's fun. <laughs> All right, well done. I think. Did I win? Did I succeed? You win the prize. Great. I don't know what that is, but you win it anyhow. I'll be I'll be looking in the mail for it. Okay. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming onto the show. My pleasure. I'm I'm so glad to talk to you about it. Have fun. Yeah, this is great. And all the best luck to you with your campaign. Thank you very much, man. Well, that was Jeffrey Greer, the founder of Pasco Games and the creator of Sans Allier. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Follow us on Twitter at TableFire and visit our website for show notes and other fun details. That's yourtablesonfire.com. We'll see you next time.